as we come now to the proclamation of God's word. And we are continuing our sermon series through the Gospel of Matthew, which we have been in for some time. And I can tell you, I actually planned out the rest of the Gospel of Matthew. So the end is in sight. thing is, I'm trying to go at a pace where we don't miss anything, but I also want to kind of capture the big picture of Matthew. And uh, so that leaves us with about 20 weeks left. So that'll take us through the summer. So we're going to be here for a little bit longer Uh, But we're coming now into this section of Matthew. We're beginning to see a side of Christ that is a little different. We, We definitely have seen him as the lamb, but here we're beginning to see him as the lion. The the Christ who, as king, rules with a scepter, and that scepter does come down in judgment at times on those who continue to rebel against him. And so we're going to begin to see that uh, through the Gospel of Matthew, and that might make us a bit uncomfortable. But you see, the scriptures give us Christ for who he is. We don't get to decide who he is. He is who he is. He is both a gentle and kind savior, but he is also one who will bring his holy justice upon those who will continue to resist him in unrepentance. But even in doing that, we still see his, ju- his love and his mercy as he continues to call us to faith and to repentance. And so we see these things come together here in Matthew. Our text this morning is from Matthew 21, uh, verses 23 through 46. And I could not fit all of that into our, uh, our bulletin. So if you have a Bible or a Bible app and you want to follow along, please do so. But I will read the entire text this morning. We read, beginning in verse 23, And when he em- entered the temple... The chief priests and the elders of the people came up to him and as he was teaching said, by what authority are you doing these things and who gave you this authority? Jesus answered them. I also uh, will. I also will ask you one question. And if you tell me the answer, then I also will tell you by what authority I do these things. The baptism of John from where did it come from heaven or from man? And they discussed it among themselves, saying, if we say from heaven, he'll say to us, well, why then did you not believe him? But if we say from man, we're afraid of the crowd, for they all hold that John was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we do not know. And he said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. What do you think? A man had two sons, and he went to the first and said, son, go and work in the vineyard today. And he answered, I will not. But afterward, he changed his mind and went. And he went to the other son and said the same. And he answered, I go, sir. But he did not go. Which of the two did the will of his father? They said the first. Jesus said to them, truly, I say to you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes go into the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness and you did not believe him. But the tax collectors and the prostitutes believed him. And even when you saw it, if you did not afterward change your minds and believe him. Here another parable. There was a master of the house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. 
When the servants, or when the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get the fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one, killed another, stoned another. Again, he sent other servants, more than the first, and they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, They will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, This is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? They said to him, He will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. Jesus said to them, Have you never read in the Scriptures the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken from you and given to a people producing its fruits. And the one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces. And when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they perceived that he was speaking about them. And although they were seeking to arrest him, they feared the crowds because they held him to be a prophet, and this is God's holy word. You know, authority and power and submission, all of these are words which are no longer considered appropriate today. They've they've been canceled. I mean, we hear constant calls about yielding power, relinquishing control. The very idea of authority is now considered abusive and dangerous and evil. And To some extent, I understand that. I mean, power and authority have been wielded throughout history in evil ways. People have been abused and destroyed by the misuse of power. And rather than being an instrument of God's justice, people have used it as a club to beat down those who actually need help and protection. They need the power of authority in their lives. And so I can understand then why people have a problem at times with authority and power. But that distrust of authority leaves us with a very serious problem when it comes to Jesus. You see, Jesus comes to us as a king. That's what we've been saying all through Matthew's gospel. It is a message of the king of kings, Jesus Christ. And as the king, we ought to, as God's creation, yield to his will. We ought to submit to his authority. As we've noted time and time again, Jesus doesn't leave us with any other option but that we either bow to him as our king or we reject him. But by nature, we want to object to that reality. We don't like the idea of having to submit ourselves to another. So how do we know we can trust Jesus enough to submit to his authority as our king, especially when we have seen other authorities wield their power in destructive ways. Like Jewish, the Jewish religious leaders here in our text, we have an authority problem. 
looking at our text, we see Jesus is now back at the temple. The first time he entered the temple, after his triumphal entry into Jerusalem, he made that holy ruckus. He, he drove out all the money changers and the buyers and the sellers who were turning the house of God into a thieves hideout, preventing the people from being able to worship God through the means he had given them under the old administration of his covenant of grace. And so he returns now to the temple after that and he begins teaching there in the temple courtyard to the many people, the hundreds, if not thousands, that would gather in the those outer courts. Teaching in the temple uh, was not something that was unusual. You would find that often in this day. Many rabbis would find the shade in one of the many colonnades around the outer courts of the temple, and they would teach the people from God's law. But Jesus was different. He wasn't a priest. He wasn't a rabbi. He wasn't an elder of the people. He didn't even come from Jerusalem. He wasn't trained formally in the law, in the temple. He came from a backwater village far in the north called Nazareth that people would rather forget. He was born in very humble circumstances. Some even said that they were scandalous. He, for all intents and purposes, was a nobody in the eyes of many. But this nobody had just a few days before this incident entered into Jerusalem in triumph as if he were a king on the back of an animal, a back of a donkey. And great crowds had gone before him and after him, laying down their own garments and the branches of trees, crying out, Hosanna to the son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. On top of that, that, that incredible entry into the city and the following he had gathered, uh, all the things Jesus had been saying throughout his earthly ministry were astonishing. They left the people in speechless awe. He, he taught things like, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Jesus would also forgive people of their sins when only God had the permission and the power and the authority to forgive somebody of their sins. We see him Do miracles, make the blind to see, the lame to walk, the deaf to hear. He cast out demons. He has even raised people from the dead. And the testimony far and wide, time and time again, across the land concerning Jesus was that he was astonishing, that he was amazing. As we read in Matthew seven twenty-eight, one such account, when Jesus finished his sayings, that was the Sermon on the Mount, the crowds were astonished at his teaching. Why? For he was teaching them as one who had authority and not as their scribes. He spoke as it were, with the authority of God, as if he was God, for that is exactly who he was, Emmanuel, God in the flesh. And so the chief priests and the elders of the people, on hearing Jesus teach, they interrupt him with a question. 
They say to him, Jesus, by what authority are you doing these things? What authority do you have to cast out these money changers, which, by the way, we said should be here? Uh, Who gave you this authority? And it, it really isn't an improper question in and of itself, all things considered. I mean, Jesus has been saying and doing things that are dramatically different from what the priests have been doing and saying. But the heart of the priest's question is a different matter. It's not proper. You see, this wasn't a sincere question of wanting to know the source of Jesus' authority. This wasn't a question of curious minds looking for an answer to Jesus' authority. This wasn't like a little child asking their parents why they can't have a cookie before dinner. This isn't an honest inquiry at all. Rather, it is a hostile accusation. It is more like, Jesus, by what authority are you doing these things? Implied that he has none. They knew full well from whence Jesus claimed to have his authority. They knew that He had claimed to be the Christ, the God-man, the Son of God, the second person of the Trinity. They knew he claimed to have heaven's authority when he spoke and when he worked his great deeds in the earth. They knew it and they didn't like it. And so Jesus responds in a way that is designed to expose their problem with his authority. He responds with a question of his own. And he isn't being evasive at all. This is actually a common tactic of the day used in rabbinical debates. And he asked the priests and elders, okay, I'm going to ask you one question, and then I'll answer yours if you can answer this. The baptism of John, from where did it come? From heaven or from man? In other words, was John's baptism done under the authority of man or was it done under the authority of God? Who sent John? Where did John get his authority? Now this question presented quite a quandary for them. Uh, They had rejected John in his ministry as being illegitimate. They did not believe that John had been sent by God as the forerunner to Christ. Oh, they full well knew the prophecy that there would be a prophet that would come to prepare the way of the Lord, to make straight in the desert a highway for God. They believed that, but they refused to believe that John was that chosen messenger. But many of the people did, at least a large portion of them, and, and that was a problem for them. They were afraid that if they say, well, John's authority came from man, he was just a charlatan. They feared there would be a riot. But if they said that John was from God, and thus God's servants preaching with the authority of heaven that the people must repent for the kingdom of heaven was at hand, Jesus could simply say, okay then, well, why didn't you believe him? If they were to believe that John was indeed sent from heaven... They would have to believe he was the forerunner of who? Of Jesus himself. Thus, they would have to believe and submit themselves to the authority of Christ. Even John himself declared that Christ had this authority 
In Matthew 3, he says, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. So, what do the Pharisees do with Jesus' question? Well, they refuse to give a clear and true answer. They simply say, well, we don't know. We don't know. It's a cop-out. They're, they're, they're feigning ignorance by claiming that their knowledge is actually complete after they have somehow investigated the matter thoroughly. And the verdict is inconclusive. Well, we just, we just don't know. You know, people still do this with Jesus. They have a problem with his authority. When we're confronted with the divine power and the heavenly authority of Christ, it, it often makes us uncomfortable and here's why that is. We would rather trust our authority than trust God's authority. We as humans often would rather believe ourselves, believe that we are an authority of our own lives rather than believe and submit ourselves to God's authority. We trust ourselves more than we trust God And that makes us turn inward, believe our own self-righteousness, our own goodness, and think that it is greater than what it actually is. So Jesus isn't done with these priests and these elders. He's about to lay out to them three parables that are like three crashes of a gavel, of a heavenly gavel, condemning them, exposing their sinful ways, exposing their rebellion. Two of those parables are in our text this morning. The first is recorded in verses 28 through 32. Jesus takes us back again to a farm, and he tells the story of a man who had two sons. He asked his first son, Hey son, would you please go out and work in my vineyard? And the son, of course, objects. Now, those of us that are parents of children that are old enough to do chores, you can relate to this father. You've been there. You know what it's like. Hey, would you go go do the dishes or go cut the grass or, or pick up your room? And what do the children say? No, no, I don't want to do that right now. <laughs> but the son here in this story, he changes his mind. Literally, the language Matthew uses in the original Greek is, is he repents. He realizes he was wrong. And he, he turns from that and he says, I will submit myself to the authority of my father. I'll go do what he asks. And he goes off into the vineyard and works. So the father goes to his second son and he asks him the same thing. Hey, son, will you please go work in the vineyard? Unlike the first son, the second one, enthusiastically agrees at first. Sure, I will go do that. In fact, he addresses his father with great respect. He calls him Lord or Sir. Yes, Sir, I will do it. But he never goes. And again, parents can relate to that scenario too. But Jesus then asked the religious leaders, Which of the two sons did the will of his father? And the answer is very obvious, is it not? The first son, who though he refused at first, repented. And he did what his father asked. Now in this parable, the father represents, of course, God. And the first son, as Jesus explains in this text, represents sinners, great sinners, 
Those that were considered the greatest sinners of the day, tax collectors and prostitutes, who at first did not believe what John was preaching, the gospel of repentance, that the kingdom of heaven was at hand, that the the Messiah would soon arrive. But then they later repented and they believed what John was preaching. And the second son symbolizes these religious leaders whom Jesus is confronting the people, the religious leaders of the people of Israel. And so what's the point that Jesus is getting at? Well, it's this, that the the priests, the scribes, the elders of the people, they had seen clearly and they had witnessed with their own eyes, they had heard the truth of God proclaimed through the mouth of John. And thus it was revealed to them that Jesus was the Son of God, the Christ, and yet they failed to believe Him. They failed to trust Him. They failed to repent. They trusted their own authority more than the authority of God. You see, trusting the authority of Christ, it always involves repentance on our part. It means laying aside my trust, my confidence in all the other objects of my worship and devoting myself wholly to Jesus. That's what the first son in the story did. He changed his mind. He said, no, I will, I will not follow my own authority any longer. I will submit to the will of my father. And he did. You see, both in the ministries of John as well as Jesus, we see it as great sinners who repent and believe, not the moral religious leaders of the day who trusted their own morality, their own self-righteousness. Great sinners have access granted to them to enter into the kingdom of God, but self-righteous moralists who refuse to repent of their self-righteousness never have heaven's gates opened even one crack. And yet, they are thrown wide to even the boldest of sinners who do repent. And they are then slammed shut to those who boast in their own goodness, their own authority. Like the religious leaders of Israel, so many people are unwilling to trust God's authority because they trust their own authority more. That's the authority problem that we have with God. We want to trust ourselves more than God. We would rather submit to our own ideas than submit ourselves to God and what He says through Christ our Lord, Christ the King. And that leads to another big problem then that many people have with Jesus. And it is this, is that people want the blessings of His kingdom without the King. Immediately after completing uh, this parable and delivering this, this knockout blow, as it were, that exposes the prideful unbelief of the Jewish religious leaders, Jesus just winds up and lets out with another parable, another blow. And this one cuts even deeper at the very heart of their sinful self-righteousness. I'm going to read it again uh, because it's been a while since we read the sermon text. Here another parable, says Jesus in verse 33. There was a master of a house who planted a vineyard and put a fence around it and dug a wine press in it and built a tower and leased it to tenants and went into another country. 
And when the season for fruit drew near, he sent his servants to the tenants to get his fruit. And the tenants took his servants and beat one and killed another and stoned another. Again, he sent other servants more than the first, and they did the same to them. Finally, he sent his son, saying to them, they will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. And they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. When therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to these tenants? They said to him, he'll put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their seasons. This parable is a symbolic summary of God's redemptive history, particularly related to his people in the old administration of his covenant of grace, the, the people of the nation of Israel. Jesus' story is reminiscent of God's voice to his people that we find in Isaiah 5, where Israel is likened to a vineyard that is cared for by God. God has planted them, and he has protected them, and he has provided for them, and prepared them for his purposes. The tenants of the vineyard in this story are the leaders, the elders, the priests of the people, but they are also represented of of representative of the people representing them before God they are the spiritual shepherds they are to minister to the people they are the pastors of Israel they are to lead them in the means of grace so that they might be renewed in the loyal covenant love of God towards them through worship as God dictated through the, the temple worship of that time The fruit in this story that is mentioned in this parable is the fruit of the kingdom. What is that fruit? It is simply this. It is faith and it is repentance. You see, the conditions of God's covenant grace are simply that we must turn from sin, turn from trusting our own authority, and turn then to Christ through faith alone. The servants that are sent by the master, the owner of the vineyard, to gather that fruit, to call the people to repentance, are who? They are the prophets that God sent again and again and again to warn his people every time they stumbled into sin. The prophets are calling the people to the fruit of repentance. And the son in the story, of course, is Jesus. So let's put all that together. God the master plants the vineyard, his covenant people, in the old administration of the covenant, the people of Israel. He plants that vineyard so that from them, all the peoples of the earth might be blessed by the fruit of that vineyard and drink of the produce of that vineyard, the good wine of the grace of God through the worship of God. And so he provides for his people. He protects them from enemies. He, He pours out blessing after blessing upon them through his sovereign mercy. He gives them his law to guard them and so that they might know him better. He communicates his grace to them through the worship of the temple that he ordained. And then when they fall into sin and they, they break covenant with God, he sends them prophets to call them back to repentance. But like the servants in the story, what did the people do? 
Well, they beat those prophets, they killed them, they stoned them, they rejected them, and thus rejected the master that sent them. But, oh, the master, he is so patient and long-suffering. He wants the fruit of repentance from his people, and he will do all he can to, to gather that fruit in. After all, the vineyard is his possession, and so he sends more servants, more prophets, and what happens again, they are rejected and killed. And so finally, God, the great master, in his love and mercy, he says, I will send my son. I will send Jesus, Emmanuel, God with us. Surely he will be received. But no, he is not. And the people plot against him and they determine to kill him. For they know, hey, this is the heir. Let us kill him and steal the inheritance for themselves. And so they take the son in the story and they kill him. As we will see not long after this, they will take the son of God and cast him outside the city and crucify him thus rejecting God the Son and rejecting God Himself. But notice something they aren't rejecting. They aren't rejecting the blessings of the kingdom. In the story, they want the fruit of the vineyard. They want it for themselves. They just don't want the Son. In Jesus' parable, the wicked tenants, they say they want the inheritance that actually belongs to the Son, the the blessings that belong to the Son, but they don't want Him, so they kill Him. They're willing to rob the Master of what is rightfully His. You see, so many people, they want the blessings of the Gospel. I mean, who doesn't want to experience mercy and forgiveness and grace? Those are all beautiful things. People want the smile of God upon them. They want His providence. They want His protection. But they don't want the Son of God. And if they can try to get the blessings of the kingdom and snatch those promises of the covenant of grace for themselves, they'll try to do that through whatever means is necessary, even if it requires violence against the Son of God Himself. And that, brothers and sisters, that is why there are so many other Gospels out there, so many other authorities that are saying, follow this, follow this, do this, and you will be blessed. But here's the thing, you can't have God's blessing without God. You need Christ, you need the King. It doesn't work any other way. Paul tells us in Galatians 1, as he writes, he says, I'm astonished that you are so quickly deserting him who called you into the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one, but there are some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we preach to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. The priests and the elders that were engaged with Jesus here in the temple courts, they felt that very condemnation from this parable Jesus had just spoken. 
Jesus asked them a question at the end. He says, so you tell me, priests and elders, what should this master of the vineyard do to the tenants who killed his son? And you got to love their reply. They say, put those wretches to a miserable death. Don't just execute them. Make them suffer. Put them to a terrible death of punishments. And the irony is, you know, their judgment isn't wrong. The master had every right to punish the wicked servants for the violence they had done against him. Because you can't have the blessings of the kingdom without its king. If you reject the authority of the king, you will be rejected by him. And in putting the son to death, the leaders of Israel, the people who reject him, write the warrant of their own rejection. Jesus replies to the priests and the elders of the people by quoting to them from Psalm 118. Jesus says to them in verse 42, Have you never read in the Scriptures? And of course they have. When he, when he asked that of the, the elders, the priests, the Pharisees, they have read it. They are familiar with these words. He says, Have you never read in the Scriptures? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. This was the Lord's doing, and it is marvelous in our eyes. That psalm, Psalm 118, is a prediction of Christ's own rejection by the people and his death. He will be cast aside. He will be rejected. But through that death and his resurrection, he will build something greater. As Jesus explains in verse 43, he says to these these priests and elders, I tell you, The kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. So the kingdom of God is going to be taken from those who will reject Christ. God is a just and a holy judge and the warning is very clear. And this is exactly what we are going to find happens not long in history after this moment. For in A.D. 70, the Roman Empire attacked Jerusalem, destroys the temple, the place that the people would worship, and wipes it away as a form of God's judgment upon them for rejecting the Son. However, that judgment was meant to point to a final judgment. As Jesus goes on to say, the one who falls on this stone, speaking of himself, will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush them. See, Jesus is that judgment stone. If you stumble, if you do not submit to his authority, now you will ultimately be crushed by his holy judgment. And that is hard to hear. And it is meant to be hard to hear. Because as we hear that, and as we fear it, and as we see that we are unworthy to come to God, that we are deserving of This fate, because we too love to trust our own authority, we see something amazing happen here. It drives us not away from the stone, but to Him. And here's what is beautiful and amazing that is going on with this rejected stone who is Christ. Notice what He becomes. 
In Psalm 118 and here in Matthew, he says that the stone that was rejected, that the people rejected, has become what? The head cornerstone. Now, a cornerstone is a structurally indispensable and prominently visible part of a building of that time. Without it, a building could not be constructed. It would crumble and fall. It was needed. Jesus, by being rejected through his death, would defeat the sin that keeps us from God. He, he would become, through his resurrection, the centerpiece of a new temple, one that is made without human hands, a temple built by God that will last for eternity, and that is his church. This is God's people, the, the citizens of heaven's kingdom. A cathedral built on Christ. By the Spirit, a temple of people from every tribe, tongue, and nation united together in faith and repentance upon Christ. It is you and it is me if we, like the tax collectors and the prostitutes in our text, do not reject Jesus but run to him in repentance. Peter writes in his first epistle, speaking of, of this new temple that he is building, he says, as you come to Jesus, a living stone, that would be the cornerstone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. That is our faith, our repentance that we express through our worship of Christ. Peter goes on, for it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am lying in Zion, a a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Will not be put to shame. Will not be crushed. Will not be broken into pieces. Will not suffer the holy righteous judgment of God because Christ was rejected for them in their place. You see, it's interesting in the story that Jesus gives, the vineyard actually isn't destroyed. It's only the tenants that need to be destroyed. Rather, the vineyard grows, it expands. Jesus says that the kingdom isn't going to be removed. He just said, it's going to be removed from you, you religious leaders, you who reject the king, you who would rather submit to your own authority rather than the authority of the king. And it's going to be given to who? He says, a people producing its fruits. Remember what the fruits are? Faith and repentance. And The word that he uses for people here is ethne. It's people of many different tribes and cultures and ethnic groups. So he's saying, look, Jewish religious leaders, you might reject this king and you will reject him and you will not accept my authority. But I am building a kingdom and you will not be part of it, but I will give it to a people that are not you, but people from every tribe, tongue, and nation who come together producing its fruits 
of faith and repentance. And so Jesus, what we see then, is either a stone of judgment or he is a cornerstone to you. He is a stone of judgment upon those who reject him, but he becomes the foundation of life and forgiveness with God forever if you receive him and submit to him. You can trust Jesus' authority. You can. You can trust Jesus' authority because his rejection becomes the foundation of your redemption if you indeed are united to him. And that is good news indeed. That's the gospel. There are so many voices that are calling out to us, demanding that we submit to their authority when indeed they are nothing but tyrants that would destroy us. And the loudest voice of all those voices comes from within our very own corrupted hearts. For we are sinners by deed and by nature, the Bible tells us. But there is a voice that calls out above all that clamor and all that noise. It is the voice of the cornerstone saying, Come unto me, all you who have who labor and are heavy laden, and I'll give you rest. And so, friends, go to Him. Go to Him. Trust His authority rather than your own. Do not reject Him, but repent and receive Him. Be renewed in Him. And He will be that sure and steady foundation of His kingdom as He builds you into this holy spiritual house where you are secure in God's presence and grace forevermore. Let us pray. Father in heaven, as we consider Jesus' heavy words, we understand that all of us are drawn to our own authority more often than we are to submit to yours. And Father, we know though that if we repent, that if we come in faith, You are willing to receive us because your son was sent and he was rejected so that he might become our redemption. And so, Father, help us, help your people to rest on him by faith alone, turning from themselves and turning to Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.